Turn in your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Last Sunday, as we tried to unpack this subject of giving thanks, we noted that since the end of the first century, the Lord's Supper has been called the Eucharist. And that word, Eucharista in Greek, is the word thanksgiving. So how appropriate that on this Sunday of the Thanksgiving weekend, we come to celebrate the Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Now, we never celebrate the Lord's Supper without talking about what we're doing a little bit. So as we unpack uh, our text this morning, which is actually just one verse, my hope is that we will grasp more fully some things signified in the Supper for which we ought to be especially thankful today. First, I want to read the, the uh, text in its context. So we'll read 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 14 down to 22. 14 to 22, verse 16 is actually our text. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Did not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that there is a sacrifice offered to an idol, that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is, is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's the whole context of our actual text, which is verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The key word here is the word participation. It's a Greek word that some of you may have heard, the word koinonia. Uh, That's a popular word in Christian circles because it's commonly translated fellowship. And so we'll see koinonia churches, fellowship churches. It means to fellowship or means sharing in or having something in common or participation in. God says when we have God says that we have koinonia, we have fellowship, we have a participation in the body and blood of Jesus when we eat the bread and wine, drink the wine together. We participate in his death. So the question is, what does that mean? To be connected to Jesus in his body and blood. What does it mean that we share in his dying? In what way do we participate in Christ's death? Well, the scriptures, in the scriptures, I find at least three answers, three implications of our union with Christ in his, die, in his dying, in, in his body and blood given for us. That's what I want to talk about this morning, these three implications. The first is this. 
that Jesus dying makes us clean. That's what difference it makes. Jesus dying makes us clean. I don't know about you. I don't like being dirty. There are certain jobs that I just find really distasteful because you just get filthy. I'm sure you know what I mean. Many of you work dirty every day. And uh, whether you've been working on the car or cleaning toilets, um, when you're sweaty and dirty and greasy and smelly, you hate to be close to anyone. You just don't, you just, you, you, you're repulsive. You just want to get clean. Well, guilt is like that. Sin makes us dirty inside with a filth that we cannot wash away. The problem is, it's the Holy One, the Lord, who we're not fit to be around, not just one another. He's the one who can't stand our filth. So we painfully feel the rejection. We feel his revulsion against our sin and guilt. And to compound the problem, we cannot just wash that away. There's no soap and shower that will clean a guilty conscience. But as we come to the Lord's table, to participate in Jesus dying, we're reminded that it's Jesus' death that makes us clean. This is the most basic thing that the Bible says about Jesus' death. We read in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We read again in Hebrews 9. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? That's the promise of 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from every sin. At the root of our being, in the depth of our conscience, Jesus makes us clean by causing us to share in his dying where our guilt was paid for, atoned for. There's a great story in a book named Forgiving God and Unforgiving World. I've told you this story on other occasions, but I want to tell it to you again. A priest in the Philippines, a much-loved man of God, carried the burden of a secret sin that he had committed many, many years earlier. He had repented of it, but he had no peace about it, no sense of God's forgiveness. In his parish was a woman who deeply loved God, but claimed to have visions in which Jesus appeared to her and she spoke to him. The priest was understandably skeptical as I would be. So he said to her, probably goading her a little bit, the next time you speak with Christ, I want you to ask him what sin your priest committed while he was in seminary. And she says, okay, I will. A few days later, the priest asked, well, did Christ visit you in your dreams again? And she says, yes, he did. And did you ask him what sin I committed back in seminary? And she says, yes, I did. Well, what did he say? To which the woman replied, he said, 
I don't remember. Now that woman may have been confused about many things, but she had that answer absolutely correct. Because we're joined to Jesus in his dying, God no longer remembers our sin. Jesus dying makes us clean. We read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If your soul's dirty this morning, if you've washed and washed, but the blood won't come off your hands, I call you back to the Lord Jesus who died to pay for your sin. Come to him. Confess your unworthiness. Receive in faith the broken body and spilled out blood once again and be made clean. As Heidelberg Catechism explains, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer, as I do right now to you, that as often as we accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all our sin. That's what it means to participate in the body and blood of Jesus this morning. It means that in Christ we stand unblemished before God. The bread and wine of the Eucharist is a sign that we share in his dying. That's the first truth. There's a second way in which we participate in Christ's death. It's our second point. Jesus dying makes us stop sinning. Jesus dying makes us stop sinning. You know the old expression, give him an inch and he'll take a mile. Well, some have thought of God's grace like that. I mean, if God freely forgives us when we sin and his grace is uh, unlimited, well, then why not just sin boldly, do whatever you please, because God will then forgive you. Give him the opportunity to show how great his grace is. Now, as revolting as that sounds, we do see something of the greatness of God's grace in the fact that such an argument could even be made. For it is true that God's grace is unlimited, without measure. Ah, but more sinning is not God's plan for us. Jesus does not just save us from the guilt of sin. He died to deliver us from sin completely, to break the chains of its bondage, to free us from having to sin, to give us victory over it, so that we might live as we're created to live in right relationship with God, in in, enjoying and glorifying him forever. In the accounts of Jesus' miracles, he doesn't just say your sins are forgiven, although he does say that. But he sets people free from their bondage, from the enslavement of Satan's power. And so the fact that we share in Jesus' dying enables us and compels us to stop sinning. That's what the scriptures clearly say 
In Romans 6, we read it. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Don't you know that, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In the same way, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's Romans 6. Jesus dying enables and compels us to stop sinning. 1 Peter 2, 24 says the same thing. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. That's God's goal for us. His dying makes it possible for us to stop sinning. As we come to the Lord's table today, as we participate in the broken body and spilled out blood of Jesus, it's imperative that we understand that this means a radical break with sin. Here and now, we can and must stop sinning. That's pressed on us by the context of our text here in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 14 begins with this section with the command, flee from it, idolatry. And then the reason is given, because as the Lord's Supper indicates, we are joined to Christ in his dying. That's why. And then verse 21 the exhortation is repeated. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So this morning we cannot share with, in Christ sitting at this table with him and then continue to go the way of the world, sitting down in fellowship with every kind of wickedness. Jesus dying makes us to stop sinning. I know what you're saying. It's the same thing I say. I can't do that. You're right. You can't. This is bigger than But as we eat this supper together, Jesus proclaims to us and guarantees to us that in joining us to himself, he has broken the bondage of sin. And he has given us his own spirit, the spirit of holiness, who empowers us to live holy lives. Therefore, we will be able to stop sinning. I don't mean to say this is easy. This is a bloody war. Satan and the world are fighting against you, and your own heart will quickly run to side with the enemy in order to do what you want to do. And indeed, we have physical limitations and we have psychological predispositions that lead us repeatedly into temptation. It's no small thing to even understand what's going on inside of us and begin to try to address our issues. But folks, defeat is not inevitable. You don't have to keep on sitting no matter how much you want to. You don't have to. Because of your union with Jesus and his dying, you're dead to sin. And because you share in his resurrection, you are alive to God. Jesus has given you nothing less 
than his own spirit to empower you. Therefore, you can say no to ungodliness. And you must. And as we eat the bread and drink the wine this morning, we're saying, I will. I will. I come to the table dead to sin and alive to God, for here I participate in Jesus dying for me. Therefore, I come to die with him, to die to sin, to die to myself, to die to the seduction of the world. I will. For years, the little church that I pastored in New Jersey met in a rundown Grange Hall. I think we were 12 years in that Grange Hall. The whole end of one end of that building was covered with an out-of-control vine that had grown up unchecked and untrimmed for years and years. It had grown up the wall. It had grown around the chimney. It had grown into the mortar in the, between the, the bricks of the chimney. The vine had even pulled the electric lines loose from the building. It was a nuisance. It was a mess. So one Saturday when we had a cleanup day, we took a saw and we cut the trunk of that vine, which is a pretty sizable trunk by this time. And guess what happened? No, the vine did not fall off the building. But it did stop growing. It was history. It was dead. Oh, it continued to cling to that building probably for years. But it didn't have a chance, for it had died at the root. In one moment, its growth was decisively ended. And as that death came to be felt throughout the whole plant, even its most tenacious branches shriveled up and eventually fell off. And folks, that's what's happened to our sinful nature. When Jesus died, and this morning we celebrate our, 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 our participation in his death. When Jesus died, in that one act, our sin was cut off at the roots, severed. Therefore, we are enabled and we are compelled to learn to stop sinning. May the Lord sanctify us through and through. That's what that means. We stop sinning. One final way we participate with Christ in his dying. Because Jesus died for us, we give our lives for him. Because Jesus died for us, we give our lives for him. These days, unfortunately, suicide bombers have become a terrorizing fact of life. We see them as crazy people, certainly wicked people. Nonetheless, their readiness to die for what they believe is somewhat shocking. In spite of how terrible murderous their goals are. Have you ever thought what you would be willing to die for? Certainly not to kill innocent people. 
But is there anything for which you would willingly, knowingly sacrifice your life? Because whatever you would die for is probably what you would be willing to live for. To sink your life into. To suffer hardship for. This morning as we eat the bread and drink the wine together at the Lord's table, we proclaim our participation in Jesus dying. And that means not just that we enjoy enjoy the benefits of forgiveness. Not just that we have the ability and the responsibility to stop sinning. But it also means that we too are to be willing to die for him. Or if we don't actually die, willing to endure anything, giving our lives to him. Jesus dying for us calls us to give our lives for him. Again, I didn't make this up. This is what the Bible says, 1 Peter 2. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Or in Philippians 1.29 we read, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. In fact, that's what Jesus himself told us in John 15, the night that he was betrayed. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Jesus dying for us calls us to give our lives for him. And so we set out to do that. Set out to serve. We suddenly have a new purpose in life. We're going to give ourselves, we'll give our lives to Jesus. We're going to go anywhere, do whatever he tells us to do. And we begin to do that. In the middle of our new life goal, things seem like they fall apart sometimes. We work to be faithful and we get stepped on. (laughs) We give all we have and it's not enough. We do good and we're accused of evil. We love people and try to help them and those very people attack us. Try to hurt us in return. We live our lives for the Lord and we still have as much pain and sorrow and sickness and dying as anyone else in the world that's living for the devil. What is wrong? Nothing. This is what it means to participate in Christ's suffering. This is what it means to give our lives for Jesus. And so having been willing to die for him, we may then be asked to live for him, dying a thousand deaths in a thousand different ways every day. As we come to the Lord's table, we enter into the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. We come saying, Lord... For you, I will live or die, your choice. For you have suffered and given your life for me. Jesus dying calls us to give our lives for him. In Philippians 3, the apostle Paul writes of his heart's desire. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's what this sacrament is all about. We come to share in Christ's death. He invites us into the intimacy of the fellowship of his suffering. He unites us with himself so that in what he did, we participate. So what does that mean for our life? Well, those three things. Because we're joined to Jesus and he's dying, we're clean before the Lord. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. We're clean before the Lord. Because we died with him, we are compelled and we are enabled to stop sinning. And because Jesus died for us, we are obligated to give our lives back to him or live our lives out for him, no matter what the cost. It's his choice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we may often see the Lord's Supper as a kind of an empty ritual that we go through each month. And uh, maybe it doesn't mean that much to us. It's just one of those church things that we do. But help us, Lord, to understand that uh, what's going on here is a profound thing. That we are entering into the fellowship of your dying, Lord Jesus. And that that has wonderful and powerful implications for us. So maybe not shy away from that, but gladly, Lord, claim your grace as it's offered to us here. And gladly give ourselves, offer ourselves like you offered yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.